This is a legacy episode of the Lesbian Historic Motif podcast, originally released as part of the Lesbian Talk Show podcast group. Some references may be obsolete. The show looks at lesbian-relevant themes in history and literature, has interviews and discussions about current historical fiction with queer female characters, including fantastic versions of the past, and presents new original historical fiction for your enjoyment. One of my first goals when I started researching FF themes and motifs in history was to get a sense of what images my fictional characters would have of the possibilities for two women who loved each other. So much of our self-identity as queer people comes from comparing ourselves to the social models we have available. Endless mid-20th century coming out stories involved women who thought they were the only person who had ever felt that way because they had no models for same-sex love in their communities, in literature, or in popular culture. Faced with the idea of writing endless historical romances that centered around coming out themes, I wanted to know what the alternatives were. Just how might women in history have been introduced to the idea of same-sex love? When you look at Western history, one pop culture property that carries the image of love between women across the centuries, albeit in a shifting and problematic form, is the story of Iphis and Diantha, as first presented in Ovid's Metamorphoses. It's likely that the story was not original to Ovid, Most of the stories in the Metamorphoses have older roots, but we have only his version as an early source. In brief, Iphis and Diantha is the story of a girl raised as a boy who falls mutually in love with another girl and who the gods then transform into a boy so they can marry. I'll get back to the story itself, but first a bit of background on Ovid. The poet Ovid, in full, Publius Ovidius Naso, was born in the mid-first century BCE to an upper-class Roman family. His family wanted him to study law, but he preferred to write poetry, and his early career involved praise poems with erotic themes. His collection, Heroides, is a series of letters from famous women, or fictional female characters, to absent lovers, and is the source of the myth of Sappho pining for a male lover, Phaon. His Ars Amatoria, The Art of Love, was a semi-satirical instruction manual on how to woo, please, and keep lovers, and was popular in translation down the ages. The Emperor Augustus banished Ovid, possibly for political reasons, possibly because Ovid's work was seen to encourage adultery during an age of concern for the sexual morals of the Roman upper class. But before that exile, he also completed the 15-volume Metamorphoses, an encyclopedic verse compilation of transformation motifs in Greek and Roman mythology, progressing from the birth of the cosmos to the political triumph of Julius Caesar. Although Ovid reworked and interpreted existing mythic material in the Metamorphoses, one result of the popularity of his work is that his versions are commonly taken as the definitive ones. The Metamorphoses were conceived of as a unified work with themes progressing and connecting the various stories. But this aspect is often lost when the individual myths are read or studied in isolation. For the story of Iphis and Diantha, this removes some of the essential context for interpreting the sexual themes. Keep in mind that the unifying theme of the work is metamorphosis, or transformation. Iphis and Diantha appears at the end of Book 9, out of 15, of the Metamorphoses, generally in the context of transformations relating to love for inappropriate objects. Within the story, Iphis compares her love for another woman to the love of Pasiphae, the wife of King Minos of Crete, for a bull, which resulted in the birth of the Minotaur. 
Pasiphae's story occurs in an earlier book of the Metamorphoses, but more immediately before Iphis and Iantha, we find how the infant sons of Calhro were transformed instantly into adults so they could avenge the death of their father, who had been killed while trying to fulfill a greedy desire of Calhro for a necklace. Look, it's complicated. Then, the story of Byblus, who fell in love with her twin brother, and after failing to convince him to engage in an incestuous relationship, she was transformed into a spring because of her incessant weeping. So the story of Iphis's transformation into a man to resolve the problem of her impossible love for another woman must be seen as one of a set of stories of non-normative desire. To be fair, the love between Iphis and Iantha is treated far more sympathetically than those others, and the two are allowed a happy ending of sorts, but the same-sex love is not allowed to stand as such. So let's dig a bit deeper into the story itself, with examples from the translation in Thomas K. Hubbard's Homosexuality in Greece and Rome, a source book of basic documents, which provides a literal, though not metrical, version of the meaning. When Iphis's mother, Telethusa, was pregnant, her father Ligdus said that if the child were a girl, then, although he would regret the necessity, the child would have to die, because they couldn't afford to raise a girl child. Telethusa begged him to reconsider, but he was adamant. Right before the birth, Telethusa had a dream of the goddess Io, who was associated with the Egyptian goddess Isis, who promises to protect her and the child, no matter what sex it is. When Iphis is born a girl, Telethusa conceals her sex, presenting her to Ligdus as a boy. The father fulfilled each vow he owed the gods and gave the child his father's name, Iphis, named for her grandfather. Her mother was delighted since the name could work for either sex. No need to be dishonest. She wore boys' clothes and had the kind of face that would be called a beauty, masculine or feminine. There are two interesting points here. That because the name Iphis could be born by either a boy or a girl, her identity avoids one type of deception. And in common with a number of other gender disguise stories, the ideal of beauty is presented as being androgynous, one that doesn't require extreme association with either a male or female stereotype. Therefore, Iphis can be an idealized figure without being depicted as abnormal, either as a woman or as a man. Ligdus arranged a betrothal between the child he thought was his son and Iantha, the daughter of his neighbor. As was not uncommon at the time, the betrothal was at what we would consider the early age of 13. This meant the two entered adolescence, encouraged to think of each other as romantic partners. Iantha had the richest dowry of beauty, golden hair, the daughter of Telestus. They were alike in age and loveliness, and from the same teachers they had learned their childhood lessons. So naturally, love touched their young hearts equally. The wounds they felt were equal, but their confidence at total odds. Iantha longed for her marriage, the promised wedding torches, and her husband, whom she believed to be a man. Who wouldn't? Iphis loved and longed, but she despaired of ever having the one she longed for, and this increased her passion. Now, remember what I said about this story being placed in the context of the consequences of inappropriate desires. For the love to make sense in this context, it must be presented as involving an impossible love, that is, a love between two women. There are two ways to look at this. One is the easily falsifiable position that it is psychologically impossible for a woman to desire another woman. Since the very premise of the story is that Iphis and Iantha fall in love with each other, it doesn't make sense that this would be the argument. The second interpretation is that possible love is being defined as love that can be consummated with penetrative sex. This might make sense, except that in the passage that follows, Iphis compares her situation with the natural world in terms of desire and not in terms of consummation. 
A girl, on fire for a girl, she spoke through her tears. What end awaits me, victim of this new, bizarre, unheard-of spell of Venus? If the gods intend to spare me, then they should have. If they want me ruined, then they should at least have sent some normal malady. No cow lusts after a cow or mare for a mare. The ram inflames the ewes, the doe follows the buck, and so on. Birds of every type of animal. No female ever desires another female. I wish that I didn't exist or weren't a girl. And yet, she desires Iantha. That is simple fact. It clearly is possible. What Ivis can't get past is that they can't perform male-female sex acts. She compares her situation to that of Pasiphae, whose sexual desire for the sacred bull was made possible by the inventor Daedalus, creating a cow costume for her. Look, don't ask. Greek myths go strange places. But that, Iphis laments, was at least a male-female coupling. Could Daedalus use his ingenuity to change her into a boy? Or to change Iantha into a boy? This is the first point at which the transgender concept is raised. Iphis now laments that it is the physical impossibility that stands in her way. No guardian forbids you the caress you crave, no over-anxious husband, severe patriarch, not even the girl. She's yours just for the asking. And yet you can't possess her, can't get lucky, not for all the world, for all that gods and men can do. What I want, my father wants. And so does my future father-in-law. So does my bride-to-be. Nature alone says no, and her voice drowns out all the rest, and she alone subverts me. The day I've longed for, my wedding day, draws near, and soon Iantha will be mine, but not belong to me. I'll die of thirst with water all around. What we have here is a conflict between an in-story and out-story explanation. Within the story, Iphis simply has a failure of imagination as to what two women can do together. She's been brainwashed into thinking that only pseudo-heterosexual sex counts. But from the authorial point of view, something more insidious is going on. Because Ovid is quite aware of the possibilities for sex between women. Body humor about women's same-sex escapades was commonplace in Imperial Rome. Ovid's own Herodes included reference to Sappho's sexual history with women, though he depicts her as considering that past shameful, now that she has Faye on the ferryman's desire. For Ovid, the problem isn't imagining what two women might get up to in bed. It's considering that compatible with Iphis as a positive heroic figure. One of the archetypes in classical Roman understanding of sexuality was of the tribut, the masculine woman who takes an active role in sex. This didn't necessarily involve penetration, but could simply involve taking the lead and the upper position in rubbing vulvas together, the activity to which the tribut gave her name. The male-dominated records that have come down to us are deeply rooted in a hierarchical, asymmetric understanding of sexual activity. There must be an active and a passive partner, and those roles were gendered. But women were expected by nature to take the passive role in sex. So a woman who accepted the sexual attentions of another woman was not necessarily considered abnormal in the same way that the active partner was. The woman in the active role was considered abnormal, not because of the object of her desire was a woman, but because she was usurping the role of a man. Thus, for Iphis to act on her desire, to take the role of a tribid, moves her out of the category of normal, admirable women into the category of abnormal, sexually aggressive women. In general, Ovid meets out punishments to female sexual aggressors in the Metamorphoses. In this context, Iphis's failure or refusal to act on her desire appears to be what makes her a virtuous character. Her desire for a woman is tragic, but not directly condemned, only because she doesn't claim the male prerogative of acting on it. So, what is she to do? 
The wedding day is approaching. Iphis really, really wants to marry the woman she loves, but doesn't see how it's going to work out. And what about Iantha? Well, Iantha believes herself to be betrothed to the man that she loves and feels no conflict about it. Iphis' mother, Telethusa, is the only other person who knows the shit is about to hit the fan. But Io promised her that everything would be okay, right? So she goes to the temple and prays to the goddess, this time under the name of Isis, and demands, I did all that you commanded. My daughter is alive now and I have not been punished. We have you to thank, the gift of your advice. Take pity on us both. Help us. The goddess gives her a sign that all will be well, and Telethusa leaves the temple with Iphis, whose stride is longer now, her complexion is less delicate, her expression sharper, her strength has increased, her tousled hair is shorter, and she has more stamina than usual for a female. The reason, Iphis, is that until this very moment you were a female, and now you're a boy. Voila! Everything's okay. Now the marriage is celebrated. For a relatively short and tidy story, it has a lot of ambiguity and complexity. In contrast to the Roman stereotype of the tribute as a masculine woman, Iphis and Iantha are described in the language of similarity, equal in age, in beauty, in education, and in the love they feel for each other. Iphis is described as having a non-gender-specific beauty. And we, as we see in the Metamorphosis, both Iphis's physical traits and her behavioral ones are changed from what they were before. The description is not unproblematically a case of simply aligning the physiological self to the inner gender identity. Despite the cross-gender presentation motif, Iphis and Iantha fit more with the model that Valerie Traub calls femme-femme love, in which similarity is seen as the driving force between women's love for each other. In their pre-metamorphosis state, there is no active passive contrast, no distinction of masculine and feminine presentation except in the most superficial terms. Iphis is understood socially to be a boy, but simply by parental fiat, not based on appearance or personality or physical prowess or even based on a gendered name. We see this in the post-transformation description. Now her stride is longer. Now her complexion is less delicate. Now she is stronger and has more stamina. And curiously, now her hair is shorter, implying that she had long feminine hair before the transformation, and yet this was not taken by anyone as a gendered attribute. In fact, the pre-transformation ifis provides conflicting arguments about gender essentialism. Nothing about the pre-transformation ifis was read as being feminine, otherwise the deception couldn't have been successful. Contrarily, the proof of the sexual transformation is presented as being a shift in gendered attributes. Iphis is raised as a boy due to her mother's choice, not her own. And in her internal conflict over the marriage, her anxiety is over identifying as a girl and believing that this makes her love for Iantha unnatural. If Iphis identified as a boy, leaving aside the question of whether this is a concept that Ovid could even have envisioned, that problem wouldn't exist. In the moment when Iphis raises the possibility of sexual metamorphosis as a solution, she doesn't fixate specifically on transforming her, but only that one of them must change. Let Daedalus himself come flying back to Crete on wings of wax. What will he do for me with all his brains and skill? Turn me into a boy? Or will he change you, Iantha? This open-ended option is emphasized even more strongly in a Renaissance adaptation of the tale, which leaves the question entirely unsettled as to which of the girls has been changed after the curtain closes. The metamorphosis is not to align internal gender and external sexual identities, even despite the prior gender disguise motif. And yet, if the ways in which Iphis is described makes it difficult to read the story wholeheartedly as a transgender one, there are also significant problems in reading the story wholeheartedly as a lesbian one. 
despite the obvious evidence that Iphis is in love with Iantha. Both her internal dialogue and the author's framing represent love between women as impossible, or at least untenable. Metamorphosis is imposed on them to dodge the possibility of an egalitarian, mutual, non-phallocentric love between two women. Not because it was impossible, but because it was unacceptable. One cannot look at the conclusion to Iphis and Yantha and say, here is a female couple with a happily ever after ending, because they are only allowed to have that happy ending once they are a heterosexual couple. This cultural imposition of heterosexuality is an underlayer for the entire Western history of female husbands. We cannot with certainty interpret every female husband as a lesbian because the shape of their lives is identical to what we'd expect for a heterosexual trans man. And yet we cannot with certainty interpret every female husband as a trans man because we see time and again with cyclic regularity the rise of cultural scripts that define women who love women as actually being men. This is a conflict that continues to play out today, even in the face of the deciding principle that your identity is what you understand it to be. History is less susceptible of that subjective truth, whether analyzing the lives and identities of actual persons, or even more so when interpreting fictional characters in the past, where the author's motivations and limitations play as much of a part as the lives they present on the page. One curious side note to the sexual metamorphosis motif is that such a transformation, though only from female to male, was considered to be a known phenomenon in classical Roman times and on through the Middle Ages. Such transformations are described in histories, in travelers' tales, and other anecdotes. The philosopher Pliny claimed that some animals could change sex, even repeatedly back and forth. I mentioned a Renaissance adaptation, but let's step back and look at the full history of how the tale of Iphis and Diantha was transmitted across the ages. We have no copies of the work from anywhere near its time of composition at the very beginning of the first century CE. In general, all texts of this era come down to us only because they were copied and recopied continually over the ages. We have a few fragmentary parts of the Metamorphoses dating to the 9th and 10th centuries, and then more complete versions from copies made in the 11th century and later. But it was an extremely popular text by the Middle Ages, with hundreds of copies in circulation. In the Middle Ages, there were French adaptations of the Metamorphoses that I'll discuss a little bit later. Versions of the stories began appearing in Middle English in the later 14th century. Geoffrey Chaucer borrowed some of them for use in his Canterbury Tales, though Iphis and Iantha was not one of those. John Gower included a number of older romantic tales in his work Confessio Amantis, A Lover's Confession, written around 1390. It has a framing story in which an aging lover gives his confession to the chaplain of Venus, the goddess of love, an interesting mix of Christian and pagan motifs. The tales in the confession are organized in groups by the seven mortal sins, with Iphis and Diantha placed under sloth, not as an example of sloth, but as an example of what the hardworking lover can achieve. Gower's interpretation is ambivalent about sex between women, rather than being entirely negative. He alludes, possibly, to sexual activity between the two women, and in contrast to other versions, which treat such a thing as impossible. Gower's version is relatively short, so I'll include it in its entirety. I've edited some of the vocabulary to make it understandable to modern ears, but the original version is in the transcript. The king Ligdus, upon a strife, spoke unto Thelacus, his wife, which then was with child great. He swore it would not be let, that if she have a daughter born, that it should be forlorn and slain, whereof she sorry was. So it befell upon this cause. When she delivered should be Isis, be nigh in privacy, which of childbearing is the goddess. 
came for to help in that distress, till that this lady was all small and head and daughter forth withal, which the goddess in all way bade her keep, and that they should say it were a son, and thus Iphis they named him, and upon this the father was made to believe, and thus in chamber with the queen this Iphis was taken though, and clothed and arrayed so, right as a king's son should, till after, as fortune it would, when it was of a ten-year age, him was betake in marriage, a duke's daughter for to wed, which Iantahite, and oft abed these children lie, she and she, which of one age both be, so that within time of years, together as they be playfellows, lying abed upon a night, nature, which causes every wight upon her law for to muse, constrains them, so that they use a thing which to them was all unknown, whereof Cupid, arrows thrown, took pity for their great love, and set that over nature above, so that nature's law be used, and they upon their lust excused, for love hates nothing more than a thing which stands against the lore of what nature naturally has set. For Cupid has so beset his grace upon this adventure, that he, according to nature, when that he sees the time best, that each of them hath the other kissed, transforms Iphis into a man, whereof the type of love he can of lusty young Iant his wife, and then they lead a merry life, which was to nature no offense. And thus, to take an evidence, it seems love is well willing to them that be continuing with a busy heart to pursue a thing which that is to love do, Whereof, my son, in this matter, thou might ensample taken here, that with thy great busyness thou might attain the riches of love, if that there be no sloth. It isn't entirely clear what the thing is that Iphis and Iante use in bed together, a thing which to them was all unknown, whether this is an oblique reference to using the genitals in a way that was against nature, or whether an object is meant. But this version of the story at least implies the possibility of sexual activity, and the certainty of a kiss between the women prior to the metamorphosis. In Gower's version, it's implied that the love between the two carries such weight that Cupid rewards them with the ability to lead a merry life together. Whereas Ovid's original frames the metamorphosis as an escape from the social consequences of having Iphis's female state discovered, Cupid is perhaps a better author of this ending than the less familiar Isis would have been. But the pagan content of the story must have made some uneasy, for by the early 14th century, a French adaptation was composed, known as Ovid Moralisé, or Ovid Moralized, which adapted the stories to create Christian moral lessons, with Ovid converted into a sort of proto-Christian philosopher. Many of the stories were drastically changed in the process. William Caxton, of printing press fame, produced a translation of the French Ovid Moralisé in 1480. By the time we get to Caxton's version, a number of the details of the story have changed. The father, Ligdus, is no longer too poor to afford a daughter. Instead, he is rich and merely murderously misogynistic, claiming, A woman is without a strength and valor. By women, many there be put to great shame and sorrow. When Telethusa appeals to the goddess Isis, the goddess doesn't simply assure her all will be well, but specifically instructs Telethusa to deceive her husband. Deceit is much more to the forefront in this version, because Caxton's text claims that the name Iphis could only be a male name, where Ovid had claimed it as non-gender specific, and thus as appropriate for a daughter as a son. This daughter was named Iphis after the name of her grandfather, and thereby he went the more certainly that he had been a son. The mother enjoyed her, and much it pleased her that she was so named, for such a name appertaineth to a man and not to a woman, and so might by this name he be apperceived without saying the truth. Thus Caxton introduces the common trope of transgender status as inherently deceptive. 
Also, in contrast to Ovid's version, Caxton's language attributes masculinity to Iphis before the physical transformation. Ovid emphasizes a similarity model of attractiveness and attraction, describing characteristics that are not implied to be inherently gendered. Caxton also emphasizes the similarity motif, describing Iphis as having such a visage that who saw her might indifferently say it is a son or a daughter. But where Ovid uses feminine pronouns for Iphis, until the metamorphosis, Caxton, similarly to other medieval texts, alternates gendered reference by context, not only before the metamorphosis, but even before Iantha is introduced. So might, by his name, he be apperceived. Iphis had the habit of a man-child which became him much well, and also she had such a visage that all who saw her that is, Caxton's Iphis is male in some essential way, just not quite male enough to marry a woman. This inherent masculinity is implied to be the basis for Iphis's desire for Iantha, but is not sufficient to enable consummation. Iphis laments that she is not worthy of Iantha's love. She was much discomforted, which supposed never to have more enjoy her, nay, a couple to her. A sheep female desireth the male and engender together, and a cow assembleth her to a bull. Every female by right requireth his male. There is no female that desireth to couple her to another female, and I, a female, require as male against reason. I had liefer not to be born than to have so foolish hope. Like in Ovid, after recalling how the inventor Daedalus created a device to enable Pasiphae's foolish love for the bull, Iphis raises the idea of a sex change, either for her or for Iantha but only to deny its possibility. For I may not become a male, nay she neither, that abideth for me. Ovid's text is somewhat coy in identifying exactly what aspect of marriage Iphis is incapable of fulfilling, but Caxton is somewhat more direct. For I may go, come, speak, embrace, and kiss her as my love when it pleaseth me, and there is nothing that may distrouble me. The gods give to me a great part of my desire, but what shall avail me this joy? In the midst of the water we shall die for thirst, for I may not do with her as a man ought to do with his wife. Once more, Caxton's text attributes masculine identity to Iphis. To desire a woman is to desire as a male. Iphis's mother delays the wedding as long as possible, but then takes her to the temple of Isis to throw themselves on the goddess's mercy. The goddess appears in a vision, the temple shakes as a portent, or maybe just an earthquake. This is Crete, after all. And Iphis emerges from the temple, a greater pace than she was wont to do, and had less white in her visage than she had before, and her hair were shorter and harder, and she were, was more vigorous and stronger than she had been before, nay, than woman might be by nature. She had changed all her feminine nature into masculine. But here, Caxton's anticipatory gender assignment is missing. At the very point when Iphis has been physically transformed into a male, the language is entirely feminine. What is the moral? Well, in the moralized Ovid, we aren't left wondering on that point, for Caxton lays it out in an afterword, suggesting that the story might have been inspired by a cross-dressing woman who married another woman. But in contrast to the rather innocent romantic angst of Ovid's Iphis, the moralized Iphis is depicted as being driven by lechery, aided by an old and evil bod who helped her obtain an artificial penis to deceive her wife. 
It may well be that in ancient time was a woman that wear the habit of a man which seemed a man, and they that saw her had supposed well that she so had been. And the mother made the people also to believe it, and it might happen that some fair maid saw her, fair, gentle, and pleasant, in the habit of a man, and believed that she was a man, and desired to have her in marriage. And she, which was foolish and nice, fianced and espoused her, how well she had not the instruments of nature, but against the right of her, desired to compare her lechery in her, howbeit that she had such impleshment as afore is said. The witch wife, and very love, knew it not. So much complained she that the foolish love tempted her by the art and craft of an old and evil bawd, achieved her foul desire by a member apostate, and deceived this wife, which by law of marriage ought not to have her. And when she apperceived it, she hid it no, but chewed and told it, whereof she had ever after all her life shame and villainy, and was sore blamed, and that other fled, and absented her from the country. Now there be none that have to do with such work, for it is overmuch villainous and damageable. The whole framing is converted into excessive lust, deception, and dildos. In contrast to Ovid's acceptance, whether genuine or not, of physical transformation and a heterosexual resolution to the romance, the moralized version does not admit of the possibility of genuine metamorphosis and focuses on the mechanisms of sexual activity rather than the motivations of erotic love. The French versified version of the moralized Ovid places this obsession with dildos and deceit within the story of Iphis itself, rather than being offered as an ex post facto suggestion of the story's origins. Note that some scholars interpret this final section of in Caxton as depicting the fate of Iphis and Iantha themselves, rather than a parallel story. In the mid-16th century, Arthur Golding returned to the original Latin text and produced a verse translation into English that was the version known by influential poets such as Shakespeare and Spencer. There is a rumor that Shakespeare produced a play based on Iphis Niantha, which would certainly fit with his fondness for gender-disguised plays, but this rumor is discounted by most historians. In contrast to Gower's abbreviated version, Golding's retains all the digressions and poetic excursions of Ovid's original, so it's a bit long to include in full. I've excerpted the portion in which Iphis is discovering and lamenting her love, but the full version is included in the transcript. When Iphis was of thirteen years, her father did ensure the brown Iantha unto her, a wench of look demure, commended for her favor and her person, more than all, the maids of Festos. Tellest, meant her father's name, did call. He dwelt in Dictus. They were both of age and favor like, and under both one schoolmaster for they did for nurture's seek. And hereupon the hearts of both the dart of love did strike, and wounded both of them alike. But unlike was their hope, both longed for the wedding day together for to cope, for whom Iantha thinks to be a man, she hopes to see her husband, if as loves were of she thinks she may not be, partaker. Then the self-same thing augmenteth still her flame. Herself a maiden, with a maid, right strange, in love became. She scarce could stay her tears. What end remains for me, quoth she? How strange a love, how uncouth, how prodigious reigns in me. If that the gods did favor me, they should destroy me quite. Or if they would not me destroy, at least, wise, he, yet they might, have given me such a malady as might with nature stand, or nature were acquainted with. A cow is never fond upon a cow, nor mare on mare. The ram delights the ewe, the stag the hind, the cock the hen. But never men could shew that female yet was ta'en in love with female kind. O oh, would to God I ne'er had been born, at least that candy should not bring forth all that monstrous were. The daughter of the sun did love a bull, howbeit there was a male to dote upon. 
My love is furiouser than hers, if truth confessed be. For she was fond of such a lust as might be compassed. She was served by bull, beguiled by art in cow of tree. And one there was for her with whom advoutry to commit. If all the cunning in the world and slights of subtle wit were here, or if that Daedalus himself with uncouth wing of wax should hither fly again, what comfort should he bring? Could he with all his cunning crafts now make a boy of me? Or could he, O Ianthe, change the native shape of thee? Nay, rather, Iphis, settle thou thy mind and call thy wits about thee. Shake thou off this flames that foolishly by fits without all reason reign. Thou seest what nature hath thee made, unless thou wilt deceive thyself. So far forth wisely weighed as right and reason may support, and love as women ought. Hope is the thing that breeds desire. Hope feeds the amorous thought. This hope thy sex denieth thee. Not watching doth restrain thee from embracing of the thing whereof thou art so fain, nor yet the husband's jealousy, nor roughness of her sire, nor yet the coyness of the wench doth hinder thy desire. And yet thou canst not her enjoy. No, though that God and man should labor to the utmost and do the best they can in thy behalf, they could not make a happy white of thee. I cannot wish the thing but that I have it. Frank and free, the gods have given me what they could, as I will, so will be, that must become my father-in-law. So wills my father, too. But nature stronger than them all consenteth not thereto. This hindereth me, and nothing else. Behold, the blissful time, the day of marriage is at hand. Yantha shall be mine, and yet I shall not her enjoy. Amid the water we shall thirst. O Juno, president of marriage, why with thee comes Hymen to this wedding, where no bridegroom you shall see? But both are brides, and must that day together coupled be. In the 1620s, Henry Bellamy wrote a play, Iphis and Neantha, in Latin, diverging from Ovid's plot in places, largely by introducing several new characters, including a suitor competing for Neantha's affections. Like Ovid, Bellamy suggests that Iphis and Neantha are similar enough to be twins. Similar enough that Neantha's other suitor is expected to be able to transfer his love to Iphis on being told her true sex. Iphis's virtues are depicted in female-coded terms, and the attraction of like to like is presented as natural and praiseworthy. Other verse translations appeared in the 17th and 18th centuries, but there's no need to elaborate on them except to note that the continued popularity of the work meant that the component stories were kept current in popular culture. That currency appears in passing allusions and quotations in other works. When the presumably female poet of the 1586 Maitland manuscript poem describes her desire for her female beloved, comparing the two of them to passionate pairs of same-sex friends and lovers throughout history, she concludes by suggesting that Jove, well known for bodily transformations, by metamorphosing our shape, my sex into his will convert, such that the poet might marry her beloved. Both the bodily transformation to enable marriage and the use of the word metamorphos call to mind the tale of Iphis. More solidly, the story of Iphis and Neantha was used as a basis for other popular works. This includes the medieval romance of Ida and Olive, which, among other motifs, borrows the impending marriage between a cross-dressed woman and a female-presenting one as the context for anxiety about the possibility of love and sex between women. Ida chooses her masculine disguise rather than having it imposed on her from birth, but the purpose is similarly safety from a threatening father. It isn't clear that Ida falls in love with Olive, we aren't given the same window into her interior emotional life. But unlike Iantha, Olive renews her expressions of love and faithfulness after learning Ida's femaleness in their marriage bed. Like Iphis, Ida is magically transformed into a man to save her life when her sex is about to be revealed to the world. 
On a lighter note, John Lindley's romantic comedy, Galathea, sets up a mirror to the Iphis character and has both heroines pressured into cross-dressing for reasons to do with their fathers, though in this case with the father's knowledge. While in disguise, each falls in love with the other, each initially thinking that her love is safely heterosexual, despite the superficial appearance of male-male love, but both quickly suspecting the other's disguise. Yet their love for each other survives this realization. Galathea proclaims, I will never love any but Felida. Her love is engraved in my heart with her eyes. Which Felida echoes with, Nor I any but Galathea, whose faith is imprinted in my thoughts by her words. The god Neptune mocks them and asks Venus, goddess of love, what she thinks of such a foolish choice. Venus responds, I like well and allow it. They shall both be possessed of their wishes, for never shall it be said that nature or fortune shall overthrow love and faith. Is your love unspotted, begun with truth, continued with constancy, and not to be altered until death? The two young women reply in the affirmative, and Venus promises, Then shall it be seen that I can turn one of them to be a man, and that I will. What is to love, or to the mistress of love, unpossible? Was it not Venus that did the like to Iphis and Dianthe? How say ye, are you agreed, one to be a boy presently? Their fathers squabble a while over which of their daughters must be turned to a boy, until Venus puts her foot down. Then let us depart, neither of them shall know whose lot it shall be till they come to the church door. One shall be, doth it suffice? As alluded to more faintly in Ovid's text, Galathea undermines a purely transgender reading of the story by emphasizing the arbitrary nature of the choice. One of the lovers is to be transformed to a man, not because of an underlying male identity, but in order to dodge a resolution in which two women are allowed a romantic and sexual union. But the obligatory transformation in both stories undermines a purely lesbian reading as well. Iphis's lament includes the claim that she was victim of a new, bizarre, unheard-of spell of Venus, that no female ever desires another female. And yet the continuing popularity of Ovid's metamorphoses over the last two millennia allowed Iphis to be a beacon to women who might otherwise have felt similarly. Iphis provided literary proof that women could desire other women, that they did. Iphis and Iantha provided a context for women who loved women to recognize what they felt and to place it in a long, if not always happy, tradition, to know that they weren't alone in feeling what they did. When I wanted to give my characters in Daughter of Mystery a wake-up call to contemplate their dawning love, I invented an operatic performance of Iphis and Diantha for them to watch together. I couldn't find any actual operatic versions of the story in the 19th century, but it's quite in keeping with the long tradition of reworking the story. And maybe it should exist. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Lesbian Historic Motif podcast. See the show notes for links to people and topics. Most shows will have a transcript linked as well. If you have a book announcement, a topic suggestion, or might like to appear on the show, please drop me an email. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate it and subscribe on your favorite podcast app, and consider supporting our Patreon.